welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeats ID fellow. Today, we're hopping back into a transplant ID episode. Our host for today is Dr. Navina Burke. Dr. Burke was raised in Michigan, went to medical school at Wayne State University, and then completed her internal medicine residency at Rush University in Chicago. She's now back in Michigan, completing her ID fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Joining her today is our guest discussant, Dr. George Allen-Gadden, who is the Director of Transplant Infectious Diseases at Henry Ford Health and a Clinical Professor of Medicine at Wayne State University. He completed his medical residency and ID fellowship at Wayne State and has interest in cancer and transplant patients and hospital epidemiology. Um, welcome to the show, guys. Oh, thank thanks, you. I'm so glad you're here. We're going to start off with our usual culture piece before we jump into the case. So as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, I'd love to hear about a little piece of culture or something that brings you joy. So during the pandemic, my husband and I, like many other people, adopted a COVID puppy. And so we have spent a lot of the last two and a half years teaching him different tricks. And that definitely brings us and anyone who witnesses them a lot of joy. Love it. And he is a celebrity in himself, Sarah, because he shows up at the end of every case presentation. <laughs> <laughs> some trick or the other. <laughs> well, uh, when I thought of this, the thing I really miss doing is magic shows for kids' mm-hmm. birthday parties. And so I used to do it for my kids and their friends before they all grew up and flew away. But I just realized all of our fellows now have young kids. And I think I'm just going to surprise them one of these days. The next outing that we have, we're going to get a special surprise. Oh, that sounds wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will hand it over to hear about our case today. I'm excited. All right. Uh, So let's get started. Uh, We're going to discuss the case of a heart transplant recipient with recurring infections But first, I'd like to start at the beginning. So this is a 42-year-old female, a lifelong resident of Southeast Michigan, who developed refractory heart failure due to non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. She required placement of a left ventricular assist device, or LVAD, as a bridge to heart transplantation. The first year after her LVAD placement, she was had her course was complicated by recurrent superficial infections of the LVAD driveline with ESVL, or extended spectrum beta-lactamase, ESVL E. coli. She had four episodes of infection over six months. Each time, the blood cultures were negative, and imaging, which included ultrasounds and CT scans, did not demonstrate any deep-seated infection. You know, unfortunately, infection is a leading complication after LVAD placement. LVAD-specific infection can involve any part of the device, including the drive line, the pocket, the cannula, the pump, and this may result in bloodstream infections or even infective endocarditis. Now, superficial drive line infection at the exit site is by far the most common complication and is generally caused by bacteria, both gram-positive and gram-negative, as in our patient. So how was our patient treated? She was treated during each episode with IV erdipenem for 14 days at a time. Due to recurrence of the infection, 
The plan was to continue oral ciprofloxacin until the transplantation. About 14 months after the LVAD was placed, she presented with her fifth superficial dry blade infection that was again treated with urtapenem. However, the E. coli isolate was now resistant to all oral agents, including ciprofloxacin. So at this time, she was continued on IV urtapenem, and she was also moved up on the transplant wait list from a status six to a status three. So heart transplant candidates are placed on the wait list using a heart allocation criteria for medical urgency, and the status can range from one to six. So for instance, status one or top of the list criteria include patients who cannot be discharged from the hospital due to the need for a mechanical circulatory support device, such as an ECMO. Our patient was moved up to status three due to refractory infection of the LVAD. So this is exactly what happened. And then about one month after this event, she received her orthotopic heart transplant. Now, as a transplant ID physician, Dr. Ellen Gordon, what information from this period do you want to know about? So given the recurrent gram-negative infections, it would be important to review the operative findings for any evidence of deep-seated infection all along the LVAD tract, as well as explanted native heart. And as with every transplant, it's necessary to review the donor and recipient data regarding common prior infections, such as CMV, EBV, hepatitis C, and others. It is especially important to review the serostatus of the donor and recipient for toxoplasma, an infection that heart transplant recipients are at high risk for in the absence of prophylaxis. So in our patient's intraoperative note, it stated that there was no evidence of any deep-seated infection of the, of the native heart. And we discussed this with the surgeons as well, and there was no concern for infection. CMV and EBV were both donor-positive and recipient-positive. Toxoplasma was donor-negative and recipient-negative. Our patient's induction course was with methylprednisone 50 milligrams Q8 plus a taper. And she was also placed on maintenance immunosuppression with mycophenolate, 1,000 milligrams Q12, tacrolimus, 0.5 milligrams Q12, and again, her steroid taper to a final dose of 10 milligrams daily. You know, I would also want to ensure that the patient is on appropriate antimicrobial prophylaxis, as she's intermediate risk for CMB, namely recipient positive status and donor positive serostatus. Valentine cyclovir prophylaxis is recommended generally for three months. She should also receive prophylaxis for pneumocystis with primethoprim sulfamethoxazone, which would also serve as prophylaxis for toxoplasma, had she or the donor been seropositive. This is exactly what she received. After her transplant, she did well, and then she was discharged home. She had a routine cardiac biopsy on her follow-up, and it did not demonstrate any rejection. So moving on in her course, on day 60 post-transplant, she went to the transplant clinic with nausea and vomiting for two days. She attributed this to eating leftovers at home. But because the symptoms pers persisted, she, went to the ED she was sent to the ED for evaluation. On arrival, she was febrile to 101 Fahrenheit, and the rest of her vital signs were stable. Her labs were remarkable for a leukocytosis to 12,000. She had a urinalysis done, which was significant for positive WBCs, white blood cells, and leukocyte asterisk. 
Clemsiella orogenes was isolated from the blood cultures. At this time, the source was believed to be secondary to a urinary tract infection given her abnormal UA, and she was treated with ceftriaxone. She had resolution of her symptoms and was discharged home after seven days. Moving along, on day 88 post-transplant, she developed fevers again to 102 Fahrenheit at home, and she presented to the emergency room. She was febrile and tachycardic between 100 to 120. Her labs were significant for a leukocytosis to 14,000, and blood cultures were again drawn, which, drew a pan, which grew a pan-susceptible E. coli. She had a workup done, which included a CT scan of her abdomen and pelvis, which was unremarkable, and then she was discharged after seven days of therapy with ceftriaxone. Shortly after, on day 111 post-transplant, she presented to the emergency room again with a three-day history of nausea, vomiting, and lethargy. On arrival, she was hypotensive, tachycardic, and hypoxic, and she required admission to the intensive care unit for vasopressor support and mechanical ventilation. Her workup this time revealed a white blood cell count of 16,000. She also had COVID, influenza, and a respiratory viral PCR panel, which were all negative. A urine legionella was negative. A urinalysis was done, which showed no WBCs, leukocyte esterase, nitrates, or bacteria. Her imaging included a chest x-ray and a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, and this demonstrated bilateral diffuse pulmonary infiltrates. She was empirically started on vancomycin, cefepime, and metronidazole, and she also had two sets of blood cultures that returned positive for Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Dr. Ellen Godden, at this point, what is your thought process of what could be occurring with this patient? So let's start by summarizing the case. We have a female in her 40s, approximately four months after a heart transplant, who is presenting with shock and respiratory failure. A post-transplant course has been complicated by recurrent episodes of gram-negative bacteremia with non-specific gastrointestinal symptoms without an identifiable source. It is important to note that she did have gram-negative infections prior to the transplant but these were superficial driveline infections due to ESP and E. coli. Now, as we work through a differential diagnosis, it's important to remember that infectious complications follow a specific timeline after transplantation. The first month is the period where most infections are due to complications related to transplant surgery or other nosocomial hospital-acquired infections. After the first month, and generally up to 100 days, is a period of cell-mediated immune deficiency due to the anti-rejection regimens. It is during this time that the patient is at risk for opportunistic infections, primarily those caused by intracellular pathogens, just such as CMV, pneumocystis, aspergillus, nocardia, and toxoplasma. Now, our patient's transplant surgery an immediate post-op course was uncomplicated. She was on the appropriate prophylaxis to mitigate the risk of opportunistic infections. The recurrent episodes of bacteremia is therefore unusual, and it does not fit the pattern of infections expected during this time frame. The clinical syndrome of recurrent gram-negative bacteremias, non-specific gastrointestinal symptoms, and now respiratory failure 
raises the strong possibility of hyperinfection syndrome caused by strongyloides. Furthermore, given the unexpected occurrence in a recipient from a non-endemic region of strongyloides, I would also investigate if this infection could have been transmitted from the donor. So what should the ID team do right away at this time? It is critical to immediately alert the organ procurement organization of OPO if a donor transmitted infection is suspected. The transplant center's safety officer is the liaison person who can help you with this process. The OPO can provide more information about the donor and they will notify other transplant centers to check on the status of recipients who received organs from the same donor. So the ID team reached out to the OPO and the following information was obtained. The donor was a 45-year-old male who was hospitalized following a motor vehicle accident with severe head trauma and was declared brain dead. The donor was from Mexico and had emigrated to the U.S. at the age of 18. The donor had a history of polysubstance use and had been briefly incarcerated for a DUI. In addition to, in addition to the heart, both of the kidneys were also donated. The OPO said they would reach out to the transplant centers of the kidney organ recipients. So when evaluating a patient for a donor-derived infection, what are key points that every ID fellow should know about? So one of the inherent risks of solid organ transplantation is the transmission of disease from the donor to the recipient. Now, most transmission events are expected. For example, the transmission of CMV from a seropositive donor to a seronegative recipient, and these are detected on screening processes. However, unexpected transmission of disease can still occur despite the standard extensive clinical and lab screening of the donor. The Disease Transmission Advisory Committee of the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network evaluated all reported cases of unexpected disease transmitted from solid organ donors from 2008 to 2017. Fortunately, in the United States, probable or proven donor-derived disease transmission is rare and it occurs in less than 0.2% of all transplants done. Infections account for 70% of donor-derived disease, malignancies for 20%. Transmission of miscellaneous conditions such as peanut allergy and amyloidosis have also been reported. What are the commonly transmitted infections? The bacteria and viruses account for 30% each, fungi for about 14% and parasites for 12%. Both gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria can be transmitted. Hepatitis C, hepatitis B, CMV, and community respiratory viruses were the most common viruses transmitted. Candida, cryptococcus, coccidioidemycosis, histoplasmosis, and aspergillus were common fungi that were transmitted. Of note, strongyloides was the most transmitted parasite, followed by toxoplasma and tympanosomiasis. Now, when donor-derived infection transmission occurred, 70% of recipients manifested symptoms within 30 days of the transplant. Bacterial infections manifested the earliest, followed by viral infections.
Endemic fungal infection, mycobacterial and parasitic infections generally occurred after 30 days. It is important to emphasize, and this is really the key point, that the diagnosis of donor-derived infection is almost always based on clinical suspicion. So when should you suspect a donor-derived infection? Consider a donor-derived infection when an infection occurs out of place in the timeline and pattern of expected infections following a transplant, or if the pathogen detected is unexpected in a particular epidemiological cell. Once again, it's important to contact the OPO right away when one suspects a donor-derived infection. Detection of clusters of the same infection in recipients of organs from the same donor clinically confirms the diagnosis of donor-derived infection. Laboratory confirmation can then be done using archived donor and recipient sera and other saved tissues. So at this point in our patient's course, we asked our pulmonary colleagues for a bronchoscopy given the respiratory failure of unclear radiology. When they did the bronchoscopy, the DAL fluid was noted to be bloody. And guess what? On one mammal microscopy of the BAL, there was many strongyloides filiform larvae that were swarming in the BAL fluid. Our recipient was seronegative at the time of transplant for strongyloides on the testing archive sera, and now she was seropositive, which was suggesting likely a donor-derived infection rather than reactivation of chronic strongyloides. This is an amazing and a very instructive case. I think it's also important to discuss why this patient was at high risk for developing strongyloides axis. So I'll go through some background to start. The strongyloides is a wrong worm that causes the disease known as strongyloidiasis. And it affects over 600 million people worldwide, often causing a chronic infection that, as demonstrated in our case, can become life-threatening. It's most prevalent in tropical and subtropical climates, and our patient's donor was from Mexico, which fit the climate. Infective filiform larvae of strongyloides infects humans by penetrating the skin, migrating via the bloodstream and lymphatics to the lungs, and then they are coughed up, swallowed, and in the intestine they mature into adults. The female worm lays eggs in the intestine, and the autoinfection can occur when the filariform larvae penetrate the intestinal mucosa and migrate to other organs. It is during this autoinfection process that gut pathogens, generally gram-negative bacteria and enterococci, hitch a ride with the larvae into the blood, causing the bloodstream infection. In regards to transplant, donors may have chronic infection with strongyloides, and the infection can be transmitted during trans transplantation, as may have been the case in our patient. Hyperinfection syndrome and disseminated strongyloidiasis can occur in organ recipients. Anti-rejection regimens cause impaired host immunity by depressing the innate immune eosinophilic response and downregulate the adaptive TH2 immune system. This leads to accelerated auto-infection and a devastating increase of migrating larvae and widespread dissemination. This can then result in infection of the gastrointestinal tract, the lungs, CNS, the skin, and can also cause systemic signs and symptoms as in our patient. Also from my reading, I read that hyperinfection syndrome, hyperinfection syndrome resulting in disseminated disease 
generally occurs in patients receiving corticosteroids, and this includes patients with COVID-19 treated with high-dose corticosteroids. So it's definitely something important to keep in mind as we continue to use this as a mainstay of therapy for our severe COVID-19 patients. Naveena, that was a concise description of the life cycle and pathophysiology of strontyloidiasis in organ transplant recipients. So what additional information on follow-up did the OPO provide? So the day after we came up with her diagnosis, we also received a call from the OPO. One of the kidney recipients was diagnosed with a biopsy-proven gastrointestinal strontyloidiasis. At this point, how would you treat our patient, Dr. Alamadan? So the drug of choice for the treatment of hyperinfection syndrome and disseminated disease is oral ivermectin, given daily until clinical improvement and stool or respiratory samples are negative for two weeks. Albendazole is an alternative agent, and it may have better penetration into the CNS. We would also recommend reducing immune suppression, especially steroids. In our patient, there were some concerns for malabsorption, so we actually ended up using a veterinary subcutaneous formulation of ivermectin under an emergency investigational drug use authorization from the FDA. How do you screen donors and recipients at high risk for strongyloidiasis, and what can you do for prevention? So the current guidance from the American Society of Transplantation is to perform targeted risk-based screening of persons, both donors and recipients, who were born or lived in endemic regions of the world where sanitation conditions are substandard. They also recommend screening of persons with unexplained esophilia, persons born in the United States who now live in Appalachia or in the Southeast. Serological testing is the preferred method for screening. So if a living donor or recipient is seropositive, then treatment with ivermectin should be given. If a diseased donor is seropositive, then prophylaxis with ivermectin should be given to organ recipients. So going back to our patient, she did undergo multiple complications. Interestingly, due to her alternation, she had a lumbar puncture done, and that demonstrated a vancomycin-resistant enterococcus meningitis. This has actually been reported many times in cases of disseminated strontyloidiasis. She was treated and then eventually discharged from the hospital to a rehabilitation center after about a four-month stay. I'm happy to say I saw this patient in clinic two weeks ago, and she's almost back to a normal state of health. This this is such an amazing case um, and an interesting topic. Just thinking about having a BAL and seeing worms, of course, is um, not something we see every day. Uh, <laughs> um, any parting thoughts before we wrap up the case? I thought some closing thoughts, just some takeaways from that. Okay? This is a, such an instructive case, and there are some key takeaways from, from this case that I like trainees to remember. First, the key to detection of an unexpected donor-derived infection is suspicion on part of the clinician, and that means you. Think of an unexpected donor-derived infection when you encounter the clinical illness outside of the expected timeline of infections after transplant, or 
if a pathogen is detected that's out of place in that epidemiological setting. Also keep in mind, most derived infections will manifest within the first month after transplantation. But some fungal and parasitic infections can occur later, so always remain vigilant. And it's most importantly, immediately alert the OPO if you suspect a donor-derived infection. And always ex expect a question on strongyloides in the setting of recurrent gram-negative bacteria. <laughs> and what about you, Navina? Any parting thoughts or perhaps you want to share a little bit about your training program? That'd be awesome. So um, I think Henry Ford is an awesome infectious disease program. We're based in the city of Detroit. It's an urban setting. And so here we care for a very diverse patient population. Um, because we're a tertiary care center, you see referrals from all over the state of Michigan. So we really do get to see everything um, in the area. And so I think after graduation, fellows feel really ready to practice anywhere. Uh, we also have a really large division, so we get a lot of faculty support, um, and it's great because we have mentors in really every field. And one thing that's really unique to Henry Ford, though, is that we have advanced third-year fellowship opportunities, which are included within the program. So we have a transplant infectious disease opportunity, as well as an HIV, if you choose to, HIV, global health, hospital epidemiology, infection control, and stewardship, which you can cater to what your interest is in. And we do, along with like the, uh, the clinical aspect, we also do a lot of scholarly activity. We're really involved in research. So um, you really get a whole range of opportunities here at Henry Ford. And Detroit is pretty great. It's definitely up and coming. There's a lot of new restaurants. Uh, downtown, they've made really nice over the past like eight years. It's really developed. So all the fellows, we, we have a good time. Thanks again for joining Febrile today. As always, don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you will find our consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any questions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.